G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and in this episode I am joined by a special guest co-host, Desi Gonzalez. Desi, welcome to Museo Punks. Hi, it's great to be here. It is so, so great to have you here. Now, you and I have known each other for a couple of years and I have been following your work and your interest in writing and thinking for some time. But before we get into that and why we're working together on this particular episode, which is focused on virtual reality or VR experiences in museums, you're going through something of a career and life change, which meant the bio that I had prepared before this episode is no longer <laughs> going to be sufficient to describe what's happening in your world. So I thought it might be nice for you to just introduce yourself. Yeah, totally. So I have about a week left as the manager of digital engagement at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and that's a week left at the time of this recording, probably not at the time which people <laughs> listen to this. Um, probably not. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and at, at which point I am uh, I'm moving to Austin, Texas um, with my partner who's starting graduate school. Uh, in my move there, I'm I'm planning to consult with cultural institutions and nonprofits um, in kind of the, the realm of experience design um, and digital strategy, uh, especially we're still interested in staying in, in the cultural space. Uh, in my past, I've, I've had other um, gigs kind of um, on a trajectory towards uh, kind of marrying digital and art together, art and technology. Um, I've spent some time in Lima, Peru, working on educational technology, uh, working an interpretation at the Museum of Modern Art, and uh, I'm, my very first digital project was managing a kid's website at the Whitney Museum in New York. Um, so I've, it's been really great to, to be so lucky to work at such wonderful cultural institutions. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is that marrying of technology, but also art and art thinking that is one of the things that so got me interested in you and your work way back when. I mean, I can't even remember exactly <laughs> when we when we first actually met, but I remember following along the writing you've been doing um, and the thinking you've been doing for some years. And it was actually one of those pieces, a piece about VR experiences in museums that you had written for Art in America, which is what inspired me to want to talk to you and have you as a co-host for this episode. So, so can you talk a little bit about what you were writing about and thinking about in that piece in Art in America, but also why VR has become this topic of such interest, why it really is the hot topic in museum technology at the moment? Sure. Yeah. Um, so that piece, I, my editor at Art in America asked me if um, if I was interested in, in kind of examining, you know, it was the end of the year, end of 2017, asked me to examine an aspect of technology that um, museums or cultural institutions were really talking about. Um, and I thought I wanted to write about virtual reality because it, it it's been a topic that keeps coming up over and over again at uh, at least the museum technology conferences, if not kind of the wider museum conversation. And then, you know, it's coming up at these conferences because it's also a big topic across industries. Um, so virtual reality, which is the, um, you know, where you wear a headset usually that um, totally occludes your vision and you're transported to kind of a, new, a different world. Uh, it responds to your, you know, the devices often respond to your movement. So you're moving around that space in this new world. You can often interact with objects. Uh, it's something that's been around for a long time, uh, at least since the 80s, right? Um, and, and thinkers and technologists have imagined it for even longer. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, virtual reality has, in recent years, really, it's been making kind of a comeback and a big splash because the technology has been become afford affordable, affordable for both consumers and artists and developers and people who just want to play around with it. It's become much more affordable for them to try it out. Of course, it's not um, in everyone's hands. It's not like uh, the way that we all have TV sets or we all have mobile phones in our pockets. Uh, but, but it's becoming more, we're getting closer to there. And there are even in recent years, we've seen, um, you know, from really big productions of virtual reality that requires a really specialized headset. And then you, you might have to download software and you're tethered to a computer to use it right. um, all the way to mobile VR experiences. So where you can take your own phone and put it in something like a Google cardboard headset 
headset and experience it right at home. Um, so this proliferation of virtual reality that we're seeing, I think there's a lot of hype and people just trying to figure out what is this medium and what can we do with it? Um, how can it be used, not just for games, but also for industry and for art and all sorts of things. Um, and museums are also wondering what that means for for us, right? What How we can use it to um, accomplish our missions. Yeah, absolutely. We have actually three amazing guests to break this down. Um, for those who are regular listeners to the show, you will know that we often explore an issue with two guests. But when Desi and I were talking about this episode, there were really a couple of different aspects that we wanted to explore. We wanted to explore what this is from a museum perspective. We wanted to explore what it is if you're an institution who wants to play with these technologies, but who doesn't necessarily have huge resources. And we also were really thinking about things like the embodied experience, right? Of what we, what we need to do um, to create spaces, to create the right sensory environment for people who are going into these um, virtual reality spaces often for the first time. So, that has led this to a slightly experimental um, mode for this episode because we're going to do it as a two-part episode. We have some really interesting guests, um, many of whom, in fact, I think, Desi, you really came through with the recommendations on who should be in this episode. So, uh, you know, in part one, we're going to be talking to Michael Haley Goldman, who is at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, about the prototype work, prototyping work that they have been doing with VR, as well as talking to Kai Frazier, who has her own VR startup called Curated by Kai. And Kai is a former museum worker and is an historian who's actually doing VR work to try and think about inclusion and representation and taking museum experiences and cultural experiences out to school kids, which is amazing. Do you want to kick us off and introduce part two? and tell us who we'll hear in part two of the episode. Yeah, in part two, we're going to talk to uh, someone who's a practitioner in the VR world, an artist named Paisley Smith, um, who has her own practice, but she's really in talking a little bit about her perspective as a a VR filmmaker and and what that language means to her. But we actually really just take a deep dive into another work by Alejandro Iñárritu, who is the um, director who... Um, released his Academy Award-winning virtual reality installation, Carne y Arena. Um, it's been on view in uh, in Los Angeles and other places around the world and has really kind of changed the game in terms of virtual reality experiences. So she's going to give us a, a really um, deep dive into that. And by looking at that one um, installation or ex- exhibition, um, we kind of understand the ins and outs of what it means to to present a virtual reality work in a cultural institution. Yeah, absolutely. Desi, your perspectives on this are so invaluable. I know this in advance because we've already done these interviews and I know the questions you ask, but I am really excited to explore this with you and I think we might as well just get into the discussions. Great, let's do it. Michael Haley Goldman is Director of Future Projects in the Levine Institute for Holocaust Education at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Future Projects is a small, collaborative team designed to research, prototype and explore emerging technologies that can transform Holocaust memorialization and education. Michael, welcome to Museopunks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you here. So we're talking about VR, virtual reality today. It has become one of the trending topics in museum technology conferences and conversations after, you know, years of being sort of a tantalizing possibility. We're now seeing more and more museums starting to adopt this. But before we really get into talking about its potential and its challenges for museums, can you talk a little bit about how the Holocaust Memorial Museum has been using VR and why the museum was drawn to it in the first place? I I think that's a a really good question, partially because when you say VR and Holocaust museums, uh, it's not something that is an automatic assumption for a lot of people. Right. And I think I should say that we've been experimenting on kind of 
anything in the range of virtual environments, including VR, uh, very much on uh, uh, trying it to understand how it fits into our institution. Uh, we haven't made massive investments in it yet. We haven't tried to take it uh, to a huge number of people. Uh, we really have been trying to pick uh, small projects that help us understand how this emerging, uh, more affordable, more readily available, more well-known technology can fit into the kind of things we do. So one example is we've been doing some 360 with the public. We are doing uh, some more immersive spaces with the public, uh, but all on a, a very, very small fraction of the people we work with to really improve our understanding. When, when you say you're doing 360 and more immersive spaces, can you maybe describe it so hmm. a listener gets an understanding of what, what that might be like if they were to wear a headset or experience mm -hmm. that themselves? Yeah, yeah so, so 360 video, uh, we've been using um, phone-based virtual reality. So this is, uh, in this case, Samsung uh, headsets using Samsung phones. Uh, and we've been working with the public to watch a video shot in full 360, full surround video that ties into one of our small exhibits that's been open for some time. And so uh, there's a museum exhibit that talks about Syria right now. And when we have the staffing to uh, make it available to the public, this short video that we did not create ourselves uh, is something that kind of follows up as part of that exhibit experience. Uh, so for most people, they would come out of the main exhibit space. They would be offered the opportunity to see this film. Uh, and uh, staff would help them get into uh, the small headset uh, where they would watch about a five and a half minute film about the story of a particular Syrian refugee. It's interesting that you mentioned staff helping them get into the headset. I think it's likely for a number of your visitors, this will be their first experience with VR. So what are the things that you do in terms of introducing them to the medium? What kind of scaffolding do you provide for that experience? It's a really good question. And um, for many people, and we've been doing this for probably over a year on and off as, as we've had staffing available, uh, it's still the first experience in a headset for a lot of the people we talk to. So it's a little bit of an anecdotal evidence because we don't, we don't ask everybody, but, uh, but we're not finding as many people being more familiar with the technology as, as we expected. So we usually try to describe it um, in a, a pretty short uh, introduction of, of what they will see and remind them very, very intentionally to look around them. Uh, we were really surprised when we started doing this how many people would not think to turn around and look behind them in 360 film even though they had the headset on. Uh, so there's a, a reminder of the fact that things will be all around them, above them, behind them, uh, below them, uh, and that it's a, a full experience and that they should look around. Also because this is, is phone-based VR um, 360, it's not something that they can move around in. Uh, we found with younger audiences that they do want to move and trying to keep them seated and safe is something else we try to, to prepare them for. That is something that we don't always succeed in, but we've been managing to keep people mostly seated during the experience. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering, um, I think there are two levels in which you can talk about visitor reactions and response. And on the one hand, some museums are, are thinking about virtual reality and just kind of, uh, if it's someone's first time experience virtual reality, how they respond to this new medium, right? But then also getting a little bit deeper, how do they respond to this particular experience or that story being told through an immersive medium? Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how visitors have responded to the experiences that you've, uh, for example, the, the short video um, on Syria, Syrian refugees, how they've ex responded to that experience and, and if and how you might be evaluating what's successful. Evaluating is an important part of this, and uh, we've gone through a variety of different stages uh, of very informal observation uh, through some more kind of formal questions and, and surveys. Uh, we haven't really hit the numbers that I'd want to say anything is really conclusive for, for any of the questions we've been asking, and uh, it's been a bit more of an experiment for us to try to figure out how to dig into the questions than I would like. But um, there, there's there's been overwhelmingly uh, a lot of interest, uh, a lot of recognition of things going on and, and surprisingly, at least from my perspective, uh, deep conversations when we've had the, the time and, and staff to ask people to talk a lot more about it afterwards. So you know, when we have people coming in, one of the audiences that picks up on this is our, our, our high school students. Mm. Uh, they're definitely a group that will gravitate towards these headsets when they're available within uh, the museum. 
uh, with often very little thought, as far as I can tell, as to what they might be seeing in it, right? And so from uh, a perspective of somebody who works in Holocaust and genocide content, the idea that you're in the Holocaust Museum and you're willing to put something on your face not knowing what you're going to see is, is kind of shocking. But only a, few times, <laughs> only a few times I had one very, um, very articulate uh, teen stop and say, wait, is this going to be something upsetting? And uh, Which is a great question as you're coming into something like this. But despite that, even when you don't expect a lot from the, the audience that's picking these things up and, and, and watching this video, uh, you'll have some really thoughtful comments and really some thoughtful conversations uh, with people afterwards when you get the chance. Um, so again, this is very anecdotal, uh, but you do get that full range of people who come out of it uh, and uh, definitely have had people burst into tears. I've had people uh, who, um, who react uh, with a very sincere question that we really don't know how to answer always is what can I do about this? Uh, those kinds of reactions definitely come out of the experience. Um, but what we, we haven't been able to do in our research so far is really dig into the question of what is the role of novelty in this technology in terms of people's reaction? Um, and what is the role that this film would have if it's, if it's totally flat? Right. This is a well-made film. We were very lucky. The filmmakers were willing to license it to us. Uh, it's a set of filmmakers that we already had a relationship with, and they were going back to do this film um, and started the conversations with us before they made it. Uh, and they did a really great job with it. Um, it, it's a, it. They're good filmmakers. They did a really great job. What would this be like as a, as a 2D, as a flatty? Um, and how would that compare in terms of the reactions we're getting? Um, we don't really know for sure, even though we've tried to test that in a variety of ways. Yeah, it's one of the things I've been thinking about. Your story um, of the teenagers who, you know, will just put on the headset without even thinking about the content really reminds me a lot of um, <laughs> how museums have often been with new technologies. For instance, when apps would come around, you know, there was sort of advertising that we have an app without saying what the content was that you would be getting from the app and why that mattered. And it really makes me wonder about why... VR storytelling? Why does it become a relevant or useful vehicle for telling particular stories as opposed to a film or some other form of media? It sounds like that's one of the things you're trying to figure out at the Holocaust uh, Museum, but do you have a sense of are you trying to use this technology to tell different types of stories or are you more interested in using the technology to see what it can do? Well, so I have the luxury of the way that our group is set up in the museum um, that we can push without knowing the answer to what this technology is good for. Uh, which doesn't mean we didn't have our own theories about what the technology was good for, but part of our job within this institution is to say, okay, VR is something that is out there that people are excited about. What does that mean for us? And what what are the real affordances and strengths of the technology um, that we might build into future programs that the institution will do uh, before the institution really gets gets ready to do that in a big way? So um, we have a little bit of luxury, but from our point of view, the questions we were asking were really um, about presence in space, right? I, I think um, one of the terms you don't hear enough of when people are talking about uh, virtual technologies is, is that it's very spatial. It's very much a, um, uh, an experience in a place. Mm -hmm. It's place-based, uh, which is not something that you hear as much about, uh, but I think is really vital to the kinds of stories that can work within this space. Mm -hmm. right? That creates other problems for us as an institution in terms of the history and content that we work with. But the other experiments we've done have been often around ideas of spatialized sound, uh, sometimes projected um, room-sized spaces, uh, kind of like caves, but not quite. Um, and, and so when we were using 360, it was really about presence in space. Those were the questions that we were asking along with some of the other experiments we were doing. Um, and as we've kind of evolved past that question uh, to thinking about other things, the idea of um, it has evolved into a question about role uh, really is, is that you play a different role, I think, within these spatialized experiences than you play within a, a, a role of watching uh, mm -hmm. when, that you, like you do with 2D um, video and, uh, and other kinds of experiences. That's really um, fascinating. And I really like the way that you're talking about the affordances of, um, you know, the experience of a space taking you to a different space, but um, in many ways museums are already immersive environments. Are you thinking about that kind of the way that a visitor goes from your museum space 
to another space, say Syria, or, or to a refugee camp, or to elsewhere? Um, is that something that's part of, of what, what you, your team is thinking about? Absolutely. I, I think um, one of the, the big partners for these projects has been our, our excellent exhibitions team here at the museum. They were able to bring in, and we played a very small role in it, but that was really their work to bring in uh, a project uh, that is not ours. It was created by an outside institution called The Portals. Uh, and this was a project that I include in a lot of our conversations around virtual reality. It's really um, a, a simple concept where uh, they constructed what's more or less a shipping container inside the museum. Uh, the shipping container includes uh, more or less video conferencing technology, but they try to mask it. They try to make sure everybody is life-size and that the space that you create within the, the shipping container is very neutral and um, minimizes the sense of screens that you're watching. And our exhibitions team and our, our committee for the prevention of genocide was using it to hook up visitors here in the museum to uh, Syrian refugee camps in several different locations. And it was a very similar kind of issue. It, it's not what we usually think of as a virtual reality, uh, but it's building on some of the same concepts about how does the technology create a space that you're in. And what was really important in that project, at least in, in my perspective, is that it was a neutral space where everybody voluntarily went into that space to have a conversation. And it wasn't a public conversation. And so the, the people who created it, uh, Shared Studios, they were uh, interested in it being a private conversation between two people on, on different sides of the planet uh, and not being something that would be politicized and not being something that would be public and on display. right? And, and so if you think about that in terms of uh, 360 film, it's the similar issue. What I liked about the way that this particular 360 film was shot is that it put you in a position of hearing the story of someone else on their own terms, on their own turf, on their own space, right? And so how much can you take a person out of it being them bringing somebody else into, into this neutral space of the museum or not so neutral space of the museum as the case may be, and, uh, but instead giving you an opportunity to step into the storyteller's space? Michael, VR or virtual reality is often called an empathy machine. It's linked really closely with these ideas of empathy. And I think that's what you're invoking as you talk about this. You know, it's often used to recreate or invoke um, somewhat traumatic experiences as a way of really immersing the audience or the participant in another person's reality. Now, the Holocaust Museum must be one of the most highly attuned museums to the challenges of dealing with trauma, but are there pitfalls or what are the pitfalls and the potential pitfalls of using virtual reality to address traumatic subject matter? Absolutely a, a huge question for us and, and really kind of at a core of, of what we've been wrestling with uh, as we've been exploring this. Uh, empathy, I'm not always convinced empathy is, is necessarily the right word for the way that we approach this educationally. Um, and, um, and I think some of the debate around empathy is, is kind of uh, taking a step out of, of where some of the issues are. Uh, I have been quoting and misquoting um, this great little uh, paper by uh, a professor of religion uh, in California um, named Gubkin. And uh, it's really a look at, without thinking about virtual reality, is what are the pitfalls of empathy as a tactic within Holocaust education. Now, one of the reasons I like this is that um, it's a very um, approachable uh, uh, um, evaluation of, of the problems that empathy might bring to looking at the Holocaust, and it resonates a lot with some of the internal conversations we've had for, for decades here. One of the things that Gubkin points to is this these um, possible problems on both sides and looking at traumatic content with empathy, even though empathy is a normal technique as far as I understand it, for looking at religious studies. Uh, she points out that not only is there the problem of uh, potentially minimizing the experiences of, of the victims in a traumatic content by using empathy as a technique. There's also the possibility of minimizing the experiences of the students uh, who are looking at a traumatic uh, situation. So to, to explain that a little better, the idea that um, if you're looking at traumatic content, you don't want people to over-empathize with, for example, a Holocaust survivor, because as much as they might empathize with that survivor, they really don't know what it feels like to be in uh, a transport from France to Auschwitz. They don't really know what it's like to be in a camp. And you really don't want them minimizing that person's real experiences and real trauma by thinking that they do. 
But on the on the other side, she points out, and this is something that I hadn't bumped into before, that she ha- found uh, uh, students that were minimizing their own experiences in comparison. And she tells this kind of heartbreaking story of a student who lost a friend recently to um, cancer. But she was in some sense beating herself up for being upset about this when in comparison to the suffering of Holocaust survivors, she shouldn't be worried about this, right? So she was minimizing her own real life, life experiences by trying to empathize with that traumatic experience in a different way. And what Gupkin suggests and what resonates really well with our institution as a, uh, as a memorial space is this concept of engaged witnessing. Right, that you want to be engaged, but you want to serve as a witness to the trauma of others, not really take that trauma upon yourself. And witnessing is such a central part of Holocaust memorialization and Holocaust education, it's a very, very familiar place for us to approach some of these issues. So as we look back at this, this film um, about Syria, one of the things that we were very fortunate in is that you are placed in this 360 film not as the person who experiences the trauma, but as the person who's really witnessing this person's story in their own terms. And, and from their own perspective. And that witnessing role is a really interesting role to play as you think about the way that you can talk about traumatic experiences in these kinds of environments. That's really fascinating. And that the idea when you're talking about um, the affordance of VR is that you, you place the viewer as a role more actively involved than just a viewer, but in some ways you're still not you're, you're still not that person who's experiencing it. You're an engaged witness. I'm, I really like that. You know, earlier at the beginning of the conversation, you talked about how uh, the Future Projects team hasn't invested um, a whole lot of resources to, to VR yet in, in a really big way. But you're right now thinking more R&D, what um, the, the role of VR could be um, for, for your museum. And I'm wondering, um, in the kind of thinking that you've been doing, for other institutions or folks who are thinking about dabbling with VR, what are the practical implications of bringing virtual reality to the museum? Who can do this? Is it only museums that have lots of resources? Is it, um, or is it something that, that could be done by, by all kinds of institutions? So I think from an experimental level, it's really much cheaper uh, and, and totally worthwhile to try things out on, on your own. Um, recognizing, fully recognizing that you're not going to create the highly polished, uh, you know, um, film quality necessarily that you might want for a larger, uh, for a larger audience. Um, but I think it's totally worthwhile to try these things out on your own. Uh, largely for internal purposes, largely for really understanding uh, in a more immediate way what these kind of affordances are. So uh, we were able to buy, and they're, they're even cheaper now than they were a couple of years ago, buy an inexpensive 360 camera, um, send out staff that make films anyway to, to um, actually try it out. Um, again, this is a luxury, and I am totally aware of the fact that we are in a, a really unusual spot internally, as, as not every institution feels like they have the time and the staffing for this, but I think we often miss the importance of really getting your hands dirty with these things um, in a way that not only you learn, but that you learn with your audiences. Audiences are totally willing to try things out from our experience um, and, and give you real feedback on things that are not polished, that are not the kind of thing that you'd want to be putting in front of a huge audience. So um, we, we've been doing that uh, kind of every step we can. And, and I'm going to say it one more time incredibly fortunate to have that opportunity here, and I know that's not the case, or not everyone feels like that's the case. Um, the next problem of this, though, is that if you can understand it, it's how do you scale up to something that is going to be of the quality that you might be putting into your exhibitions or onto your, into your web content and other, other areas where you are putting the, the money. Uh, a lot of these things are not inexpensive. The, the difference between us doing rough and ready prototypes to doing a full-scale volumetric walk-around VR experience is pretty huge. right? And, and um, that is something that's a reality that is probably not going to change immediately. And that I don't think most institutions uh, are ready to do um, because I don't know that they've spent the time exploring it. Um, we are still in that debate about whether we feel like that's the right thing for us to do next now that we've done all this really interesting uh, study and, and learning uh, with audiences, um, whether it is the right thing for us to do next. Um, but, but you can't take it on lightly. Not only is there the cost of production and, the, and, and going for the high production values, there's the cost of, of running this with the public 
Uh, my understanding that institutions that have tried more spatial volumetric virtual reality in their galleries uh, have a, about a one-to-one -one ratio, uh, one staff person for every person who sees it. That's a pretty big investment just in staff time and availability uh, that institutions really need to think about if they're going to really try to use this on site. Yeah, absolutely. I think getting to those practicalities is really important and it does make this something worth, as you say, experimenting with, but figuring out its value to the museum and to the audience. Michael, we are almost about to wrap up here in our conversation, but one thing I'd just like to ask before you leave, what is one of the VR pieces that you've experienced that you found to be really powerful and effective for you and what made it so powerful? So it's a good question. Um, and I've seen a bunch of things here and there. One of the first VR experiences I saw, and one of the ones that had a big impact was Giant, which is a fictional story based on um, a, a real-life kind of uh, knowledge of uh, the the war in um, former Yugoslavia, and it's a really simple storytelling um, piece where the the additions to just a simple headset. Uh, is really just the fact that they put uh, uh, bass speakers underneath the stool that you're sitting in, and so you feel the rumbles of what turns out to be artillery in the distance uh, later on. Uh, but what I liked about it was that it, it was, again, in retrospect, a very spatialized story that they were telling. It was a small family uh, in the basement uh, of, of a, a, a apartment building. And you feel that space, and you feel that enclosure, uh, and the story is building off of that enclosed space. Uh, and so it was the first time I really started thinking, I think, of that spatial quality with this technology and started thinking about the implications of that. Yeah, that's great. I will see if I can find a link to that and put that in the show notes. Michael, if people do want to get in contact with you and find out a bit more about the work that you're doing in this area or just in general, how can they do so? What's the best way? You know, it's terrible, but uh, email is still the best way and is always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Michael, thank you so, so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, it's been always great to talk about it. Really good question. So thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. It was great chatting. Kai Frazier is a historian and an innovative educator passionate about utilizing technology to provide inclusive opportunities and increased exposure in cultural settings for people of color. Before creating her virtual reality startup curated by Kai, she worked with several museums, including the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Kai is now a fellow in Facebook's 2018 Oculus Launchpad program, which provides virtual reality creators from underrepresented backgrounds the resources to ensure diversity of thought in the VR ecosystem. Kai, we're so excited to have you with us today because you've created this really interesting startup, which is aimed at bringing virtual reality into the classroom. You're really focused on exposing students to new ideas, locations, and sounds. I was wondering, just to start us off, where did the idea for Curated by Kai come from, and why have you focused on VR and AR as core to the learning experience? Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, and how I got into Curated by Kai is just my background. So I worked with students for about 15 years, um, and I was a history teacher. When I worked with those students, um, we lacked resources for older students. So I teach seventh through 12th grade. Uh, so there's not too much for the, that age range to talk about history. When I left the classroom, I went to working with history museums and there weren't too many programs geared at reaching back out to the underserved communities um, that could really benefit from it. So since my students couldn't visit museums and museums weren't gonna do outreach to my students, I decided to do it myself. Um, so curated by Kai, what I do is I film the diverse and representative um, memorials, exhibitions, monuments uh, in 360, and then I bring it right back to the students and we adapt it to their curriculum. Kai, when you're creating a VR experience for students who might not have visited a museum or a cultural institution before, 
How do you then set the scene? I mean, do you explore the space of the museum? Do you go straight to the objects and the stories that you're trying to tell? What What is it that you do that actually brings the museum experience to life for the students? For the students in working with history, it's pretty much starting with their own experiences and using that for a base. A lot hmm. of times when I'm teaching history, they have no context of what's happening. Um, and they've never even heard of these places or know they existed. For example, when teaching the Holocaust um, for my U.S. history class, uh, they can't even fathom that this could happen, let alone um, that it actually did happen. So that's a hard So You can't really just start with the museum. So what we do is we try to start with experiences like maybe they know what it feels like to be black and brown students to be discriminated against or be boycotted against, or to feel, you know, just unhappy with the way the world's going and because of the way you look or the beliefs you have. So we try to start with that and then find the connections so they have a, a different entry point into the exhibition and the experience. That's really fantastic. Um, one, one of the things that I really loved when I was reading about your work is for your pilot project, the VR experience that you created for the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, day, you return to, to the middle school where you used to teach to conduct mm -hmm. user testing. And I'd love to hear, what, what's it like when students um, put on that headset when they get transported to this new world? What did you learn from user testing and what surprises you when, when students are using the medium? Um, well, that school was very interesting. That's my first school that I had a, um, my first history classroom. And the challenge of that class is that these are my dreamers. These are my undocumented students, um, and mm. they've been through a lot. So with that being said, um, there's in my classroom, I'm so used to teaching those students, and they have no idea what I'm saying. And it's hard when you're dealing with that. So when I'm working with museums and they make these beautiful exhibitions and maybe it's not adapted or it's never, they've never thought about these audiences that don't get to go to the museum, that's an issue. So what we did is we filmed the, um, the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C. And then I actually went back first to my school to have some of my former students, which I taught when they were in seventh grade and they were now seniors at that point, go back and record the audio to the I Have a Dream speech. So I had um, one of my students who um, was just learning English when I taught her, she was from Vietnam, go through and actually um, say the speech in English so you can hear her accent in it. And then I had one of my students from Guatemala who came here also in uh, sixth grade. And I didn't even realize he didn't have, um, he had just came to the country because his English was so good when I taught him. So he uh, recorded the speech in Spanish for me. So it was nice. It wasn't so much the, when the kids put the headset on, it's great that they're seeing it. But the big thing for me that makes me happy is that they can understand it. So I that do. was this incredible. Well, no, no, I'm really interested. Do you always then try to incorporate the voices of the children? And I mean, you mentioned bringing their experiences in as your starting point. And I know that one of the things you try and do is actually tailor the content that you're creating to the students that you're working with and, and to the audiences you're working with. How important is it that you're getting their voices, not just then at the user testing level, but also in a production context? Um, so getting their voices wasn't originally planned, but I, could, I couldn't speak Spanish um, and mm -hmm. I had to find some way to do it. It's because I can't do it, it means it has to stop for them. So I just started to ask people who could record and my students came to the rescue for that. So it was very nice for them to hear their own voice. And even though it's great to hear the Spanish, what I really enjoy is hearing the English and the broken accent of my Vietnamese student. And having those together to kind of paint the picture of the different voices that come together to make this dream. So it was um, for them, they were just happy to be included. And then we also went through the speech and broke down the language. So it was the simplest lines that we could pull out. So we we skipped over some lines that were maybe needed a lot more context or that were historically relevant to the time that they couldn't really understand. Um, you know, idioms and things like that don't work when the kids just have no reference. They are not, they're not from the country. Um, mm -hmm. So we pulled out the simple sentences so they could understand and really brought the comprehension to their level, which is rarely done um, for museums. It usually starts at such a high level. They start off with like in, in 1945 when, um, you know, World War II ended and, and they don't have any context for it. So we kind of start on their level and meet them where they are. That's really fantastic. And I love that, um, you know, 
you're using uh, these 360 virtual reality reality experience to open, um, you know, your audiences, uh, students in classrooms up to museums, but you're also incorporating them in the media making. That's really fantastic. Um, And one, one critique that is that I feel often comes up during discussions about how museums can implement mixed reality in at their institutions is that virtual reality and augmented reality are really expensive endeavors. And I'm Mm -hmm. so drawn to your work because you're able to bring in this new media in a hands-on and affordable way. Very, we see that very clearly with the way that you're incorporating students in the media making. Um, so for, for institutions, whether it's a museum or a classroom that has a smaller budget and wants to experiment with 360 photo um, and video and VR, where would you recommend they start both in terms of kind of financial resources, equipment, the skill sets they need, et cetera? Sure. So I do um, classroom trainings right now because the tech only works in the classrooms and the teachers know how to use it. So and I give them a lot of like options to start practically using VR in their classroom. And one of the simplest ones we do is just 360 videos on their smart board or they're displaying the content for their class. So they can take a video they find off YouTube um, and they can, for example, we just filmed the Obama portraits. So they mm-hmm. can take that video and they can turn it around for kids. They can see all the different you know, angles for it and that's free. So if they are doing headsets, we, uh, we start very low cost. So we help teachers with grant writing stuff. So here's some, mm-hmm. some terminology, here's some websites um, and here are headsets that cost $10. So here's a way that you can start at a very low cost. But then a lot of schools, what I haven't planned for is a lot of schools, um, some of them do have the, this very expensive budgets. And that, that's not what I'm used to working with. So for <laughs> that school, they, those schools, they have lots of different options. But for the very, most of the teacher paying out their pocket for things, yeah. we try to give them free, low cost options and then actually bringing down the content so kids understand it in their world. Yeah, Kai, I know that, you know, you're talking a lot about inclusion and representation, uh, these things being at the heart of your work and really speaking to students that often don't be, they're not spoken to, that they don't have things in their language, that they don't have things um, that are related to them and their life experiences. For museum educators who do want to use, say, VR technology to empower students and young adults, what are the questions that they should be asking to guide their work? I think what's not happening is not even what are the questions. My thing with working with museum educators is very few of them were spending time in the classrooms or with Mm -hmm. the students. Mm -hmm. So they're making materials based on what they think the students will like. They also Mm. don't spend a lot of time asking who is our audience because students are not the same across the board. So to make more inclusive um, materials for their VR experiences, I hope that they maybe take some time to test it. Um, we always do like a business model and testing where we build the whole thing and then we bring it to the audience and then we test it. But instead, um, the way that I do my prototype testing is I get the small version out, I bring it to the school, see the feedback they have, I go back and make edits. So I am really putting my audience first. That's really fascinating. Um, that kind of the bit about a lot of people creating the technology or not in the classroom themselves. So how can they even know their users? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I'm really going to take that to heart in my own work. Um, I'm wondering uh, if there are examples of virtual reality, uh, 360 video, um, other kinds of uh, mixed reality that you really admire in terms of the way um, they're they're working for an educational purpose and being inclusive as they do this. If, if, if you have anything you can point us to. Sure. Let me think. I've seen a lot. I know one that I'll mention because I think it's in D.C. or it's leaving D.C. is mm-hmm. um, is it Alejandro uh, for his last name? I'm going to slaughter in Ritu, his carne arena. Um, yeah. VR experience. Yeah. So I got to, so that's when I got to see at uh, LACMA in LA. I'm so it, jealous. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm so yeah. jealous. Me too. Know. I've been trying to get in and I haven't been able to get <laughs> into it. I got it in LA. That's what it was. I had a friend that worked at LACMA that I've known since middle school and he was so kind to set me out of path. Huh. So I got to go in from that. Um, and for that one, it was very, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this one. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's one that does highlight a very relevant topic. 
Um, it's the way it works. If you haven't been is you kind of, you go in um, to a holding room or freezer, you take your shoes off there and you're sitting in a room for no really amount of time waiting for a buzzer to go off, a red buzzer and an alarm to go off. So that already right there is nerve wracking. That's not even the VR. That's just sitting in the room waiting for the experience to start. Um, once the buzzer goes off, I remember walking into a room and, you know, I couldn't even see the people to hand me the headsets, a large room, orange lights. I had to walk to, towards their voices. When the headset went on, it's supposed to um, put you in a VR experiment of uh, migrants crossing the the southern border. Um, I remember it starting off with like floodlights and um, migrants like almost passing out because they're so exhausted all around me and then border patrol and guns in my face. And I remember it being so intense. I had to remember that my privilege is being able to take off the headphones. Yeah. And I had to stop right there because uh, it was a little bit, it was, uh, it was too much for me. And mind you, I worked at the Holocaust Museum at that point. So, and that was just extremely, extremely intense. Um, and when it ended, the situation ended with, um, or the experience ended with um, living portraits of each of the people who were actually in the VR experience because they're real people that they animated for this um, and hearing and, and watching their stories. And I thought that was the most powerful part to me. But when you put somebody into something that intense, my critique was they dropped you into the regular museum afterwards with nothing. So I was so disturbed yeah. and didn't even want to talk. I was like, I don't even want to talk about it. It's, just, it's a lot that just happened just now. And, and maybe that is the artist's intention to just have you make a personal change. Or maybe it was to tell others about what you saw. But I think there's something to be said when you're working with difficult histories that you have to allow people the time to process what they've seen. Well, that's an interesting question. I wonder for you when you're, ta when you're dealing with history and with histories, does VR offer you different affordances for the teaching of history than might otherwise be available in the classroom? For me, yes, I get tremendously. Um, I never try to recreate anything. I try to just do 360 filmings. Um, I don't want to alter the history. Um, but for me, we're talking, so I just actually, I was rushing back from the Asian Art Museum in um, San Francisco because they have an exhibition, Divine Bodies, that highlights um, Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and US, in, excuse me, in world history, uh, religions are a huge part of it and the trade of spreading of the religions. But for parents who don't know that, I used to get a lot of angry phone calls about, um, why are you doing this to my kids? Why are you teaching my kids about Buddha or Christianity or, you know, so, and the kids mm. are coming to my classroom with their parents' preconceived notions. I remember the hardest thing to teach was Islam and my students would tell me, like, we can't learn about Islam. My mom says it's terrorism. So when they don't have a reference point from this, this is how you get, like, your crazy racist and your people who have just no empathy because they've never been exposed to different people, ideas, um, sounds. So, example, the call to prayer um, for Islam, my students would I would show them a video and they would say, like, is this the Lion King? And, and that and we, we talked through it about why it sounded different. But to be able to see... Um, the practice it was you know and the the love that's being exchanged and the similarities and religions and how it's spreading over trade routes and how it grew empires i can do that in vr that's very yeah. hard to do with students when they have no context and a lot of my students um were from um uh, mexico for example and a lot of my students thought that they were catholic and they didn't consider themselves christians because they had never had that conversation. So it was even hard trying to break down the fact that Christian, oh, Catholic, sorry, Catholicism falls under Christianity. So we're talking these kind like this, this is what happens when you're like super, super closed off and you've never been exposed to other things. So VR for me is like, um, as soon as I started to really get into it, I could see that as a way that I could um, let my students do their own critical thinking because they can now make their own opinions now that they have been, um, they got to kind of explore different um, worlds they've never seen. That's really interesting. Um, I, I wanted to um, ask you a question from a, a you, you know, responding to a quote that's on your website, it says, how can a student aspire to an opportunity if they don't know it exists? And I know that you've, um, you, know, you know, in my conversations with Seuss, we've talked about um, kind of this, that you've talked about your struggle with whiteness of the museum sector when you worked in museums, right? Mm -hmm. In the, the long tail 
um, of your work, um, how, how do you hope to inspire students of color to enter into museums? Do you do you hope to inspire students of colors uh, <laughs> of color to enter into museums as professionals as much as you want to invite them to be visitors and audiences? Are you thinking yes. about that? I, oh, always. I, I kind of got tired of being at museum conferences and hearing the diversity talks and why are more people of color there and the reality is students don't even know these jobs exist. Yeah. Um, and until we start talking at that level, nothing else matters. So, for example, my students, um, most of my students are Hispanic and they have cleaning businesses. And I used to always think when I got into the museum world, how many of my students would have loved to be a conservator if they would have been able to transfer their cleaning skills that they've known their mm. whole life, add science to it and been able to clean their own history and artifacts because the biggest question I got from um, my black kids, they can say, where am, I, where am I in a history book? And I have a few examples to show them, but they're there. My Hispanic kids, they're rarely there in U.S. history. Hmm. And like you can look at Arizona right now, and I think they've banned about 85 books that show diverse um, histories from the Diary of Anne Frank to the Fire Next Time. So it's really, you have to almost seek out and fight for the information for them. And that's how you get. Um, so when they're when they don't have the information about different jobs, what it means to preserve their history and culture, that's how you get statistics like four percent of what blacks working in art museums right. as a professional or six percent Hispanic. You know, and if yeah. we're going to change that, we have to start showing them examples of people in the museums, showing them that they can do it themselves, putting them in those worlds, which is what VR does, um, and then giving them the tools they need to actually find have a career in that. So at the end of the day they can tell their own stories as opposed to history being his story and who is actually telling the stories in these museums. Yeah, that's really beautiful and really important as well. Kai, your work brings together two areas that people might think are unrelated, being cutting-edge technology and representation and inclusion. Why are you so interested in bridging these two areas? Why has uh, the technology enabled you or how has it enabled you to do this really important work with representation and inclusion? When I worked with different museums, I began to get frustrated always trying to have people to think bigger and and think from different viewpoints in their life. Like, you know, um, how would this poster feel to you if nothing like this poster looks like you? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe this is not feel like an inviting sight. And a lot of times people are maybe afraid they see a black male, but a lot of my maybe black students, if they're in a room full of all white people, they are nervous and they get scared. Um, yeah. A lot of my Hispanic students had never seen a white or black person when they came to this country. So we don't take enough time to kind of think of it from their viewpoints. So to them, these jobs are just unattainable. These opportunities are unattainable. And when I do, when I show resources in my classroom, they're mostly, um, you know, Europeans uh, focused um, viewpoints for the history. So they already don't see themselves included in it, but they have to learn it to pass. So it's, you know, what if they found, for my personal story, my history teacher gave me John Lewis's book when I was in high school. And I already knew who John Lewis was, but just being able to read and go through the, the history and everything he went through and overcoming, I could see an example of somebody who looked like me, grew up like me, and, and overcame it to do great things. Um, so I had to take the mindset of, I can keep um, you know, going back and forth in museum meetings about why it's important to have um, representation on marketing. I could keep going to diversity talks at museum conferences when everybody in the room is is um, not white, which is a problem if yeah. you're just talking to yourself. Or I could actually just, you know, take a step out on faith and, and sell my house and move and try to do it for myself. Because at the end of the day, I had to realize that if I don't do it, there's not many people that are going to do it. And if you are working at the classroom level, you see how big of a difference it is for students to see themselves at an early age in their in these narratives. That's really fantastic. Um, to to just wrap up our conversation, one final question. Uh, now that you're not um, full-time in a museum, now that you're kind of in your own startup mode, startup world, what kind of different insights do you have or what, what are you learning um, looking into our institutions and our field? 
Um, well, you know, unfortunately, the thing that has been um, that I keep learning, it kind of breaks my heart is I feel like I learned museums wrong. <laughs> um, working in D.C., um, you know, everything's bureaucracy. Everything's very difficult. Um, and we don't take the time to elevate. Why are we doing this? We just keep on doing it. Um, so when I came to California, it was more of, you know, um, whatever you need, you can film um, that, you know, like uh, we want to help you. How can we help you? Let's connect you to this museum. Um, I mean, it may take me three months to clear a filming in D.C. It would take me three hours to clear it in California. Wow. So just when I and I see kids programs where they're really reaching out to communities and kids and bringing them in and meeting them at they are where they are. I see them bringing tech in at an earlier level for kids. So it just kind of feels like museums done right who are really serving their community. I went to the Oakland Museum. They have Friday nights at the museum. So every Friday at the Oakland Museum in California, um, they have an outside community party. Um, and the one I went to um, two weekends ago was for Pride, and they had um, a group uh, doing teaching the entire huge crowd how to vogue um, and how to dance. It was really beautiful to watch it. They had tables set up where they were playing dominoes to talk about how um, in Black culture, dominoes is a way to like sit down, have conversations and catch up and, and when they want to keep that history alive. But it was like they were going through every single aspect um, of the culture and serving them and inviting them in a welcoming way that I saw like old, you know, like old, like Asian men voguing on the floor, which I would never have seen. I was like, well, look at him duck walking. This is, this is beautiful. Um, so, <laughs> but coming into DC, I will never see, even the museum that I went to on the East coast, um, New York, Atlanta, um, DC, I, it's just been barriers to entry. It's just gatekeepers that had to find some way to manipulate around to bring the content out to students because I know they'll benefit from it. Here, it feels like they already get it. And that's what's kind of my insight that I've struggled with daily. Um, and my eyes, my, I can't even make it, my eyes water when these museums in California tell me like, what do you need? How can we help? Because I've, and I, I wish that all museums would kind of go with that. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It's just thinking about why are we doing this? Why are we here today? Let's do it. Let's serve the communities and together we'll all get better together. That's really fascinating. Do you, just a follow-up question. Do you think that's a geographic thing or is it um, a cultural thing? Is it, uh, or is it that the museums in California are really influenced kind of by, by the industry around it? I think that in, in, um, you know, I'm in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, like a uh, field over here. So it just feels like um, they treat people the the weirdest thing moving here is that I can walk down the street and somebody, regardless of how they look, will stop me and say hello. And I'm so mm. used to walking through D.C. and being invisible. Mm. So taking that, I have to maneuver very differently in D.C. to to get things accomplished. And here they're actually like they do outreach and everything they do from just walking up to me and saying hello. And then how can we help? So I wish it was more of a proactive outreach happening and, we, and, and outreach on every single level. So I feel welcome. My first museum I went to here, one of my friends from D.C. who worked with me at the Holocaust Museum was visiting with me. And we went to the MOAD, um, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. And my eyes literally watered in the first minute there because they all just came out to say hello. I didn't tell them I was coming just said, hey, I just want to look at some things. And they were so kind, rolled out the red carpet and made sure that I had everything I needed and encouraged me to come back. And I've just never had that ever in a, in a museum experience. Kai, that's really inspirational, although also a little bit depressing that it was- See, that's how I feel. And I worked in museums, I was just a visitor there. Yeah. And, you know, and they just, you know, they're like, what? I mean, from the, even one of the guys, I think she's like um, the director of development there, just found me on Twitter and engaged with me all the time, just talks to me. So it's not like the, you have to be important. You have to know these people to even get to the level to talk to somebody. It's, hey, we want to hear different voices and we know to do that. We have to, you know, have our ears open and kind of like, you know, take our, um, change our viewpoint and just be proactive. So that has been very encouraging. And I hope that that idea, you know, explores and I mean, it happens in all museums and not just here in California.
Yeah, absolutely. Here's to uh, spreading that kind of yes. change and that kind of perspective. <laughs> yeah. Kai, if people want to find you, if they'd like to find out more about Curated by Kai and the work that you're doing, or if they'd like to partner with you, what's the best way that they can get in contact with you? Sure. They can just go to my website. My website is www.curatedx, the letter X, and then Kai, K-A-I. So curatedxkai.com. Awesome. Kai, thank you so much for joining us here on Museo Punks. It has been fascinating. Thank you. My absolute pleasure, Suze. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, Michael and Kai are both doing such interesting work. Desi, I think one of the things that you and I have been speaking about with this is these sort of gaps between these big institutions that we often perceive as having the capacity to do more experimentation and then seeing something like Kai's work, which is really getting in and trying things and making things happen in a, in, you know, without that big institutional structure. Right. And I really love that, um, you know, on the one hand, Michael can think really ambitiously with his team about what Mm -hmm. they might be able to do with virtual reality. But Kai shows us that um, these new technologies, there are are ways that we can use them um, for educational purposes in a scrappier kind of uh, lower budget kind of way and and still be experimenting and exploring um, within the same medium. It's a really diverse medium. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I really liked speaking to Kai was her bringing those students in, you know, right at the at the user testing, but actually having them shape what the experience would become using their voices within the actual experiences she was creating. It also shows that that sense of creation doesn't have to just be, um, there's not just one right way of making VR. There's ways to include many different voices and perspectives. Right, right, definitely. Awesome. Desi, we're going to wrap up, I think, this part one of this exploration of VR and head over to a different podcast channel and and do part two. But uh, for anyone who only tunes into the first episode of this podcast, where can they find you? Uh, So you can find me, uh, maybe the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is at Desi Gons, D-E-S-I-G-O-N-Z. And you can also find me on my website, gonzales.desi. Awesome. And of course, I will be dropping those links in the show notes as well, as well as our bios for uh, Desi, which will be fully updated since she will have a better sense of what is happening than when we first wrote this and uh, bios for all of our other guests. Stick around if you can or tune back in and hear part two of this exploration into VR in museums. This interview that we've done with Paisley Smith, which will be, uh, you know, much more of a deep dive into a single exhibition is really worth listening to. And I hope we will uh, catch you again. But if not, ciao. Ciao.